Let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 30. It is a lengthy chapter. And so let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag, attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind, because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered it all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. 
Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brothers, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aror, those who were in Sipmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rechal, those who were in the cities of the Jehiramalites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormah, those who were in Korashan, those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Well, because of the tenacious and inexhaustible mercy of God in chapter 29, David was delivered out of the mess that he made for himself. God used the enemy, if you'll remember, the Philistine lords to protect David and to keep him away from the very battle that would end Saul's life. It was a wonderful chapter to remind us that God does not cast us off in our foolishness, that our stupidity does not evaporate his mercy. David had gotten himself into a supreme mess, but yet the Lord, what seemed to be the last moment, delivered David from his trouble again. So as the Philistines are moving north toward the Jezreel Valley for this showdown against Saul, David and his men are now headed south back toward the town of Ziglag. Remember, this is the place that the king had given David and his men and their families to reside while he's hiding out in the land of Philistia. And so they return back toward Ziglag. Verse 1 here of chapter 30 tells us that it took them three days to get there. It's about a 60-mile journey. Now, if you think about that in terms of moving uh, 60 miles in a matter of three days, they were probably going at a very quick pace. And so they arrive to Ziglag, and when they do, they discover immediately that everything And everyone was gone completely. And so this is where we get to our outline tonight. I want you to see as we walk through this together, first of all, David's trouble. As if we've not looked at enough of David's trouble. Here we are once again seeing David in trouble. 
Uh, look at it there in verse number one. The Amalekites had invaded and attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They didn't kill anyone, but they carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Just when we think that David's suffering is coming to an end, we find that his trouble has only increased. He gets back to Ziglag, and there's no town, and there's no families. Everything is gone but the smoldering rubble. Now we know from the narrator here in verse 1 that this was the actions of the Amalekite. But there's no way that David and his men could have known that at the time. And we discover the truth of this here in just a moment. But for now, all David and his men could do is mourn. The town has been demolished. The families are gone, the wives and the children. And verse 4 says, And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept. And notice the next phrase. They did so until they had no more power to weep. They wept until they could weep no more. They moaned until they could moan no more, crying and screaming until they had no energy left to cry and scream anymore. They're experiencing intense emotional grief, and rightly so. They return to nothing, not even their families. I think sometimes when we face moments like this in our lives, this kind of trouble, and we, we try to explain why we're experiencing the grief and the emotions that we are experiencing while at the same time trying to live our lives in the presence of God. How does that all work together? Living in the presence of God, God's presence being with us, but yet having moments where we are emotionally overwhelmed with grief. I think it's important that we understand that the presence of God was with David and his men. But the presence of God does not free us from the experience of grief. Part of our humanity is to know grief and to experience grief. In fact, it would do you some good as we consider the type of worship that we are to bring together, especially on the Lord's Day in our congregation. Did you know that there are more psalms? And we understand the psalms to be our hymn book. It is our guide for worship. It is there to show us how we ought to sing and pray and speak when God's people are assembled together. And there's all kinds of different psalms. There's psalms of thanksgiving. There's psalms of praise. There's psalms of ascent. Songs they would sing on their way to the house of God. Liturgy fills the psalmist of which I believe here in my recent life that I have neglected to, to, to show the, the, the seriousness of liturgy in our worship services. But did you realize 
that in the book of Psalms, there are more Psalms written for lament than for any other purpose? There are about 42 Psalms that are distinctively given for the purpose of lament, both individual lament and corporate lament. That's twice as many psalms as there are about praise. That's three times as many psalms as there are about thanksgiving. Grief is a part of our human experience. And it's not that we're just to sing songs of joy and gladness, which that is very much a part of living in the presence of God, but we need to accept the reality that equal to the joy and gladness that we experience are those moments that we need to pray prayers of lament, sing songs of lament, and allow God's experience of grief in our life to fulfill His purposes. That's what lament is, is to express deep sorrow. Grief, regret. It's a prayer and song of crisis. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're crying, they're weeping, they're crying out, screaming, no doubt, mourning. I think it's also interesting to note that David here is grieving with the people. With the people. That is, as their leader, he is sharing in their suffering. Verse 5 tells us specifically that his wives were also taken. That these sufferings that his men are experiencing, that David is experiencing right with them. Think about this. David, the chosen king of Israel, was not exempt from the sufferings of life. Perhaps this was just another lesson that God was having to teach David for the future reign that he was getting ready to bring him into. He needed to learn how to grieve with his people. He needed to know how to share in their same sufferings. And now he's experienced the same feelings that they are experiencing. He too has lost their his wives as his men have lost theirs. Together they've lost everything. Now, are there not times in our lives when we think it cannot get any worse? I mean, it just seems like from one day to the next, one week to the next, just when we think it can't get any worse than what it is, something far more worse happens. I think that's what we're seeing unfolding here with David. Ralph Davis said it like this. Listen, he said, sometimes we are tempted to add another line to Psalm 30 and verse 5, which says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The, the, the line we're tempted to add is this, and disaster strikes the next afternoon. Weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning, and disaster strikes the next afternoon. Look at verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man, for his son and his daughters. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. 
because of all the grief and bitterness that David's men were experiencing in this moment as a result of this trouble, they, they actually began to have conversation among themselves about stoning their leader, about killing David. Their bitterness had turned to blame. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can all get to this point when our emotions have hit rock bottom. We look for someone to blame, for someone to pour it all out to, for someone to cast on the reason why we're going through what we're going through. That's exactly what these men were doing. They had been fighting with David hand in hand, arm in arm. He had brought them there into that whole ordeal with the Philistines. They got out of that whole mess. By the time we get gone, everything's gone. Their homes are gone. Their possessions are gone. And more importantly, their wives and children are gone. Who else to blame but David? We've been following you, and look what you've done to us. Everywhere you lead us, there is trouble. Their bitterness had turned to blame. So David, who had escaped Saul and duped the Philistines, was now in danger of being stoned by his own men. He is once again overwhelmed with trouble, greatly distressed. We might even say he's hit rock bottom. David's trouble Notice, secondly with me, David's strength. David's strength. Just when we see it can't get any worse, he's hit rock bottom. He doesn't know what to do. Here's what he chooses to do. Verse number six. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I love that little phrase. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How is it that we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? Well, I think we have so many things throughout the Bible that we can look to, both Old and New Testament, to give us insight as to what it takes to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. But in sticking with our text, I believe our text does give us some clues. I wrote down three things here. Number one, if we're going to strengthen ourselves in the Lord the way that David did in this moment of trouble, we must first remember how God has strengthened us before. Remember how God has strengthened us before. This is not the first time we've seen David being strengthened in the Lord. This is the first time we see David strengthening himself in the Lord. But there was a prior occasion in which David was strengthened by his friend in the Lord. It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 16. His best friend Jonathan, the Bible says, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David who was in the woods. And while he was there, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Remember, David was alone in the wilderness of Ziph, hiding from Saul. He's at the lowest point we had seen him yet. And Jonathan, his best friend, goes into the wilderness to where David was just to be with him. It was one of the things we talked about in studying that passage in 23, that one of the greatest means of encouragement that we can give people who are depressed in those moments is just our presence. Jonathan goes into the woods where David was grieving, and he's just there with him. And then he chooses 
to encourage him. To encourage David in his suffering and depression. And it was through that encouragement by his very presence that 1 Samuel 23 tells us that David was strengthened in the Lord. So he's experienced the strength before. He knows what it's like to be at a very low moment and to receive this power, if you will, from on high. So how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? we got to remember how God has strengthened us before. No doubt David had thought about that moment. That with God's help, he can get beyond this present crisis. He can get through this trouble, even though his very men are the ones now wanting to take his head off. That's what you and I have to do. It is a regular occurrence, even in my own mind, when I start feeling in a way that I know is not healthy, to remember That God has brought me out of this before and he will bring me out of it again. Strengthen yourself in the Lord the way you've been strengthened in him before. And so we see that David's strength comes by how he remembers God strengthening him in a previous experience. I wrote down number two here. If we're going to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, and again, the text gives us some clues. we got to remember how God has strengthened us before. And secondly, we got to desire more than anything to hear from God. Desire more than anything to hear from God. Verse 7 says that then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord and said, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And of course, God answered him and said, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. I have to be honest with you, and perhaps you've noticed this as well. It's been quite a while since we've seen David inquire of the Lord like this. Perhaps if he would have done this several chapters ago, he wouldn't even be in the mess that he was in. He would have never had to deal with the issues that he was dealing with in the land of Philistia had he only inquired of the Lord. But we're not going to go there. We can't go to the past. We can only focus on what he's doing right now. And David's doing the right thing right now. He's seeking more than anything to hear the voice of God. He wants to know what does God want him to do. And we must apply this principle to our own lives because we have the same access to the voice of God that David has. In fact, we have have greater access to the voice of God because we can hear from God without even the need for for an ephod. And the reason why David asked for the ephod because this was the means by which God would choose. One means, not the only means, but one means that God would use through the priest, through the Urim and the Thurim to, 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 to show his direction and his purposes and his will. And of course, the Bible doesn't give us any clarity on how that worked because the Bible doesn't want us to have any clarity on how that worked. Only to say that David wanted to hear from God. That was his desire. He says, go bring the ephod. I need to hear from God. But you and I, we we don't need an ephod. If you're in need of strength from God tonight, by faith, go to the Scripture and strengthen yourself in His Word. His Word. Go to the Bible. I know it sounds so cliche, but it's not cliche. It is truth. 
that God's word gives us the strength that we need. And when we are constantly walking through the Bible, when we are spending our time daily in God's word, how often we are surprised, and we shouldn't be, but how often we are surprised that God gives us exactly what we are in need of from that random chapter in that random book that's on my Bible reading schedule today. I read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Job 23 and Exodus chapter 6 and Luke chapter 6. You say, why did you read those? Because Robbie, Robert Murray Machane told me to read those. <laughs> I'm following his Bible reading plan, and that's what he told me to read. But yet, it is in those seemingly random passages that God gave me exactly what I needed this morning. Hearing from him, strength from his word. Let us go to God in his word. Remember Hebrews 4. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what David's doing. He's strengthening himself in the Lord. The only way that we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Remembering how he strengthened us before and desiring more than anything to hear his voice. And then thirdly, he obeyed the voice of God. That's how he strengthened himself in the Lord. He remembered how God had strengthened him before. He desired to hear from God. And then when he heard from God, he obeyed God. He obeyed God. Verse 9, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men. For 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. God said, pursue, in verse number 8, and that's exactly what David did in verse number 9. He pursued. Now, we're going to deal with these 200 weary ones that stayed behind a little later. You'll know David had 600 mighty men, but now he takes just 400, the 400 who were willing and not weary, 200 stayed behind by the brook, 400 went with David, and they pursued just as God directed them. David had found his strength in the Lord. He gets up, and he gets right back to doing the purposes and will of God. He found strength in the Lord. He remembered that God had strengthened him before. He sought the word of God above all, and he obeyed what God had told him to do, all of which are the same sources by which you and I find strength. Today. David's trouble, David's strength. Write down number three, David's deliverance. David's deliverance. Now note that David still doesn't know exactly who did this in Ziglag. Now we know. We know because the narrator tells us in verse one. But he doesn't know in real time. The text implies that he went forward with whatever hunch that he had. And once again, we see God's divine providence in the lives of his people. Because look at verse number 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field. It seems kind of random, doesn't it? We're in the land of Philistia. We're dealing with Ziglag. And all of a sudden, they go to this brook by Bezor, drop off 200 tired ones. 
and they journey a little further, and then all of a sudden we just find this random man who's an Egyptian in the middle of a field. And the verse tells us that the man was starving, and they could tell he was famished and parched. Verse 12 says it had been three days and three nights since he had not eaten nor drank. So David and his men gave him food. They gave him water. Before they even realized who he was and how that he was going to help them, they, they showed kindness and, and grace to the man. It's a good side note that we ought to be more kind and gracious to the random people that we cross paths with every day. We never know how they might could help us if we just showed a little bit of kindness been easy for David to ignore this man and his men. Come on, we're, we got to go find these people who did this to our wives and children and just leave him to the side. But they stopped. Obviously, there was something about them, about the man that showed David and his men that he was in need of great help, that he, like them, was distressed. But verse 13, look at it. Then David says to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I, I fell sick. Kind of shows you a little bit about his master, doesn't it? You're sick. I don't have any more use for you. Get off the wagon, so to speak. He abandons him because he was no good to him any longer. He's sick. But he goes on, he, he keeps talking, which this is a good thing. It was a good thing that he just kept talking. Look at verse 14. We, we made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. Can you believe this? What might appear to many as a random encounter was in actual fact a divine meeting where God would give David everything he needed to know about who he was pursuing. It's awesome, the providence of God. He puts this Egyptian servant, who happened to be the servant of an Amalekite, who happened to be the same guy who raided and burned down Ziglai, and he spills the beans. He tells him everything he needed to know. And so David asked this Egyptian servant to take him to where the Amalekites were. Look at verse 15. Here's how the servant responded. Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. David apparently agreed, and they were taken to the camp of the Amalekites. And we see in verse 16, upon David's arrival, the scene that he observes is one of chaos. Verse 16 tells us that of the Amalekites, they were spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil and plunder which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. It was chaos. They're partying. That's the sign. That's the message here, the implication. There's no organization, no preparation for possible attack from someone else. Maybe perhaps they assumed that David and his men were still with the Philistines. Nobody was back home, so they've got a little bit of time to kill. But that's when David attacked. Verse 17, from twilight until the evening of the next day, not a man of the Amalekites escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Those must have been some fast camels. 
They hopped on those suckers as quick as they could, and they got out of town. Verse 18, so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered it all. And once again, we have seen the quiet, and I remind you, the quiet providence of God. This time, by the placement of this young Egyptian servant to the Amalekites. I quote Ralph Davis again. He says, no theological bells go off at verse 11 in order to announce God's providence to you. You are expected to suspect it on your own and to hear its quiet work. It seems like such little providence, finding this puny Egyptian. But little providences make big differences. That's a wonderful statement when it comes to understanding the sovereignty of our God. Little providences make big differences. It's quiet. God's not mentioned, but yet he is all over the page. And so it is in your life and in mine. Those quiet, providential gifts of God throughout the day, yes, the ones we see, but most of the times the ones we don't even recognize. Yet in his purposes and in his providence, he is keeping us right on the path He has willed for our lives. God gave David success. He and his men were delivered and their families were delivered. Now, it was time to go back to Ziglag. And I'll have you write down this fourth and final thought in the chapter and that is David's grace. David's grace. David's trouble. uh, David's strength. David's deliverance. And finally, David's grace. Well, on their way back to Ziglag, the once grief-stricken crew of men who were now a relieved and joyful group of men, they came first to the brook of Bezor, where the 200 men of David had been waiting. You know, the, the weary ones, the tired ones, the ones who were too exhausted to go any further. Remember verse 10, they all stayed behind. But notice what happens in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David, that is of the 400, answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of our spoil, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Listen to what they're saying. They can have their wives and kids and then get out of here. They didn't go with us. They didn't do anything to help us. They're not getting any of the spoil, none of the plunder. Now, every group has a faction of people like the ones described in verse 22, wicked and worthless. Every group. 
You have people like this that you work with. There are people like this in church. There are people like this in families. Every group has people like this. And I think the narrator here, and of course the Holy Spirit being the author of God's Word, uses pretty strong language here. These were wicked and worthless men. But the narrator is using that description to show us that these were people who although were on the side of King David, they were dominated by the flesh. They were dominated by greediness, selfishness, bitterness. Their their motto was, whoever doesn't fight the battle doesn't deserve the spoils from the battle. But notice what David did in verse 23. But David said, my brothers, my brothers, it's important language. He's again including them in the family, so to speak. Yes, these wicked and worthless ones, the ones who are so consumed with greed and self and bitterness, they're they're still a part of the family. My brothers, you shall not do so. Look at verse 23. With what the Lord has given to us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share. They shall share in the same. We are brothers, David says. We're on the same team. He emphasizes the point that these spoils are not what we have recovered, but what the Lord has given to us. He says, keep that in mind. Everything that we have, even our wives and children, is because God gave that to us. We didn't know who these men were. We didn't know how to find them. But God gave us this young Egyptian, and God sent us right to the camp, and God allowed us to defeat all of them. This is not the work of our doing. This is the work of God's grace. Of course, he reminds them here that we all have an important role to play. He doesn't belittle these men for being too tired, too exhausted. I think sometimes we think that that's how it should have been handled. Maybe David should have got in on the wicked and worthless men who were saying, yeah, yeah, that's right, You you don't work, you don't eat. You don't fight, you don't get the spoil. You guys were too puny. Bunch of mama's boys, always needing your rest and sleep. Why should we give you any of this? Not at all. He actually says, they are just important to us. We all have a role to play. Some to engage in battle and some to guard the supplies. Perhaps you feel the argument of these wicked and worthless men are valid. But it doesn't seem fair that those who put their lives on the line, on the front lines, if you will, get an equal amount of spoil as those who safely stayed behind and rested. The truth is it doesn't seem fair. But here's what I was reminded of this week when I was studying this. I was reminded of the parable of the talents. 
And that is, our God is not a fair God. God is not fair. His grace is not fair. And every single one of us ought to be thankful that God doesn't deal with us in terms of fairness. He deals with us in terms of grace. If they got what they deserved in terms of fairness, then they all should have been wiped out for leaving Israel in the first place and going into the land of the Philistines. And so it is in our lives when we begin to think, well, this is not fair. This is not just. You're right. God's grace isn't fair. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He always gives us more than we deserve. You see, David was driven here by a theology of grace. Grace. So much so that verse 25 tells us that he actually makes this a statute in Israel that whenever we go to battle, whenever we come back, everybody gets equal amount of the spoils. Friends, this is important. Listen listen carefully. This is where we're going to close. Grace is not just about getting into the kingdom of God. Grace is how the whole kingdom is to operate. We don't operate on works. That's what these wicked and worthless men were operating on. It was all works. Only those who worked get the, the, the plunder. And David said, no, no, no. Even those who rested are going to get the plunder. We, we don't operate on works. We operate on grace. Grace. And when you and I fail to understand this, it is then that selfishness and greediness and bitterness and idolatry will take over our self-view and it will take over our worldview. Some of us tonight need to be refreshed on the theology of grace. Grace. That God doesn't call us to give people what they deserve. He calls us to give each other what we don't deserve, what he has given to us, the free riches of his grace. You see, David's grace here is not just toward those in his own camp, but consider what he did in the final verses of the chapter. I'm not going to read them because there's a whole lot of towns in there I can barely pronounce. Let me just summarize it. He sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah and to his friends in all the places where David and his men had roamed. So he not only gives some of the spoil or or spreads out the spoil equally among his 600, but but he sends it back to the homeland, so to speak. You see, unlike Saul, who was a king who took, David was a king who gave. And what a feeling it must have been to be counted a friend of the king because all the friends of the king received gifts from the king gifts that they had nothing to do with I think it's hard once again not to see a portrait of Jesus here that in his suffering in his trouble in his pain in which he endured on our behalf In strength, he laid down his life. In strength, he victoriously rose again from the dead. 
God the Father delivered God the Son, and now His grace is extended to all of us who had nothing to do with that except the sin that put Him there. You see, I'm thankful tonight that I can be a friend of the King. The perfect King, mind you. Because as we will see venturing into 2 Samuel, and we've seen it already, but we'll see it even more glaringly. David's kingdom's going to fall. But that's not the point of 1 and 2 Samuel. For you and I, if you and I to get our eyes on King David. No, it's for you and I to fix our eyes on King Jesus. The one who says to you and me tonight that whatever trouble you're in, strengthen yourself in me. Strengthen yourself in me and let the grace of God that he gives you be the same grace that you and I extend in generosity to others. Hang on to that little phrase. He strengthened himself in his God. You can do it too. Let's stand together for prayer.